I think you know this, but not all sermons are created equal. About 20 years ago, uh, I was asked to preach a New Year's Eve service uh, at a church in Tupelo, Mississippi. And uh, this was not my first time preaching, but I hadn't preached a lot. And I was a, a young man who was very zealous and idealistic and ready to knock everybody's socks off. And so I prepared what I thought was going to be this brilliant grand slam of a sermon that was just going to help people see things they had never seen or understood before. I had this brilliant idea uh, to tell them the story of Esau from a new perspective, which you should already be thinking some alarm bells going off at this point. And uh, I, I studied Genesis 33, and we all know, if you know the Bible, you know the story of Jacob and Esau, and you know that there's this big rift between the two. But in Genesis 33, the two meet up again. And as I'm reading that, I'm reading this story, and I'm, and I'm thinking, man, it sure looks like Esau has turned over a new leaf. He's a changed man. He's, he's a different guy. He's a great example of how you can turn over a new leaf with a new year, and you can be a new person for God. And so I stood up, and I preached the sermon, thought I did a phenomenal job, until a few months later, reading my Bible, and I came across Hebrews chapter 12, which talks about Esau and tells us this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Prior to preaching that sermon, I thought I had hit a grand slam. After reading Hebrews 12 and reading that Esau did not repent, I realized I struck out with the bases loaded. And from that experience, I learned a crucial lesson. You better make sure you understand the whole scriptures before you stand in a pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord. That doesn't mean that any of us will stand up here and understand the whole scriptures perfectly. None of us can do that. But we can and should understand the scriptures rightly and truly and comprehensively to the best of our ability. Why do I tell that story? We're in the midst of a, a six-week series on biblical manhood and womanhood. And last week, I argued from Genesis 1 to 3 that men and women are equal and different. Okay? Over the next few weeks, I hope to show you how those differences play out in marriage, in the family, and in the church. But before we do... This morning, I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves if we're sure that we got it right last Sunday. Just like the New Testament confronted my misunderstanding of the story of Esau in Genesis 33, some would go to the New Testament and they would discount what I preached from Genesis 1 to 3 last Sunday. 
In the passage before us this morning, we find what is perhaps one of the most well-loved yet misunderstood verses in the New Testament. We, we find a statement from the Apostle Paul that threatens to derail everything that I preached last Sunday about men and women being equal and different. I want you to listen again to his words from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It's going to help you immensely if you have a Bible open in front of you or an app open in front of you to follow along so you can see it in God's word for yourself. Listen to Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's a question I want to ask. Is this another egg-faced Esau moment? Does this text undermine everything that I taught last Sunday about the differences between men and women? Is it right to say men and women are equal and different in light of Galatians 3.28? My, my goal this morning is to convince you that rightly understood, this text doesn't contradict anything that we said last week. In fact, this passage supports and upholds it. The point of this passage and the big idea that I hope to explain this morning is that despite our differences, men and women stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. That's the main idea of Galatians 3.28. hope to convince you of that this morning. And in order to do that, we have to talk about three truths. Okay? We have to talk about what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about Bible interpretation or interpreting the Bible, and then what we believe about the cross. With God's help, we're going to try to do all three of those things. Now, let me say this before we dive in. We did this last week as well. This is a, a series that in, in one respect, I think I'm a fool to do because this is a great opportunity for me to be misunderstood every single week. And I'm going to stand up here for about 45 minutes every Sunday for the next few weeks and talk about a topic where I can be really, really, really easily misunderstood. And it just feels like the longer I talk, the more likely I'm going to be misunderstood. In order to help offset that a little bit, uh, at the end of each of the sermons in this series, after the service concludes, I'm going to be right up here uh, for about 30 minutes answering whatever questions that you might have about the text. Uh, so come on up, get your kids from nursery first if they're back there. Come on up and have a seat up here and we'll talk. And I hope to help you think through it. I hope you'll take advantage of that. If there's something you hear and you're really not like sure, how does this fit? Hope you'll take some time to do that. But it is absolutely essential as a church, that we think through what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood. So, from our text, let's consider, number one, what we believe about the Bible. What do we believe about the Bible? Uh, our statement of faith at PBC uh, contains an entire paragraph of what we believe about the Word of God. Some of you are in our Discover class right now. You're walking through that material, and you've seen that paragraph. There's all sorts of things that we could say that we believe about the Bible. They're all important. 
But there are, are two truths, two beliefs that are especially important to rightly understanding Galatians 3.28. If you want to rightly understand this verse, two truths about the Bible you have to believe. Number one, you have to believe that the Bible is God's Word. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. If you're here this morning and you're new to Christianity or you're new to PBC and, and all this stuff is, is new to you, you're not really sure, you're kind of, you know, feeling things out, just tell you from the outset, this is what we believe about the Bible. We believe it really is the Word of God. And one of the reasons why we believe that is because that's what the Bible says about itself. So, so listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, Peter, the apostle, says in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. God gave them the words and they spoke it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, those are not only the words of great apostles like Peter and Paul. Jesus himself believed that the Bible was God's word. In a conflict with the Pharisees, and he had many of those, he was rebuking them for their traditions. They had all these traditions that allowed them to disregard the Scriptures. And he quoted the fifth commandment. And then he said in Matthew 15, verse 6, he said, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void, what? The Word of God. Jesus believed that the Bible was and is the Word of God. And perhaps you're wondering, what does any of that have to do with Galatians 3.28? If Galatians, if the Bible is not the Word of God, then does it matter what Paul said in Galatians 3.28? Whatever he said, whatever you believe it means, whatever he said, some guy in some prison somewhere wrote to some church 2,000 years ago really should have nothing to do with my life today as someone living in the 21st century, if the Bible is not the Word of God. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then both men and women, you must submit to everything it teaches about masculinity and femininity. Men, you do not stand above the Word of God, but underneath it. Women, you do not stand above the Scriptures, but underneath it, if this is the Word of God. A second truth about the Scriptures that we must believe to understand this text rightly is we need to believe that the Bible is without error. We believe the Bible is without error. This is a doctrine that's called the inerrancy of Scripture. Bubba mentioned it in his prayer for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Uh, Joel Beakey defines the inerrancy of Scripture like this. He says, the Bible does not declare anything contrary to what is true and real, and all that it does declare is faithful and accurate because it is the Word of God. The Bible, whatever it talks about, it talks about without error because it's the Word of God. That's what inerrancy means. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that there are no errors in the Word of God. 
Why do we believe that? We believe that because that's what the Bible says about itself. In Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Or Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Or consider again the example of Jesus. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, not a dot, like a little punctuation mark, none of it will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. In another place, in John 10, 35, Jesus again calls the Bible the Word of God. And then he says, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. We believe that the Bible is without error. Now, again, you might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with Galatians 3, 28? Well, if the Bible contains errors, here's the problem with that thinking. If the Bible contains errors... How do you know what's an error? How do you know? Who determines what's an error and what isn't? If the Bible contains errors, because how do we know if the error is in Galatians 3.28 or in Genesis 1-3? How do you know? Is the Bible an error when it talks about marriage or gender or sexuality or money or Jesus or the resurrection? How do you decide what is error and what isn't? If you, if you open up the doorway for errors in the Scriptures, then the Bible becomes a house of cards. And it can't stand. But Jesus did not believe the Bible contained errors. If you cannot trust all of God's Word, you cannot trust any of it. But because the Bible itself and Jesus Himself believe that the Scriptures are without error, and we can trust that what the Bible says is true. So if we're going to understand how despite our differences, men and women stand on level ground at the foot of the cross, we need to understand what we believe about the Bible. We believe it's God's word. We believe it's without error. We also need to understand what we believe about Bible interpretation. What do we believe about Bible interpretation? When I say the Bible is without error, I am not saying that everyone always interprets it rightly. Sometimes Christians make errors in interpretation. Let me give you a tragic example. Some of the earliest Southern Baptists, if you're new here, we are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is our denomination. So some of the very earliest Southern Baptist preachers taught on the mark of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. If you remember that story, Cain kills his brother Abel, God puts a mark on Cain, and the mark is so that people won't kill Cain. And some of the earliest Southern Baptists said that the mark on Cain was dark skin. They said that chattel slavery in the United States of America was justified because people with dark skin were cursed. That is a demonic lie. But that's what southern, some Southern Baptists taught. Listen to 
the fourth president of our denomination. Listen to what he said. He said, from him were descended the nations that now constitute the African or Negro race. Their inheritance, according to prophecy, has been and will continue to be slavery. And so long as we have the Bible, we expect to maintain it. That is a demonic lie. And it's nowhere taught in the scriptures. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible that even gives a hint that that interpretation is true. So what is, what's, what's happening? The Bible is interpreted wrongly. The Bible can be interpreted wrongly. It is not enough to believe the right truth about the Bible. We also need to know how to interpret the Bible rightly. The Bible is not a tool that we use to oppress people. It is truth given by God to liberate people. Once again, there's a lot that we could say about interpreting the Bible rightly, but there are two convictions that are especially important to rightly interpreting Galatians 3.28. Here's, here's, here they are. Number one, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. If the Bible is God's Word, and if God's Word is without error, then the Bible cannot contradict itself. We must interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's what happened to me as I read later on in the Bible about the story of Esau. I thought I understood it, and then I came along to Hebrews 12, and Scripture helped me to interpret Genesis 33 rightly. Uh, let me show you how this works in Galatians 3.28. Look at it again. There's therefore neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some of our neighbors and friends in the LGBTQ community have tried to use this text to eliminate the entire concept of gender. Uh, to accept this argument... That all of a sudden, male and female don't exist as categories anymore. You would have to ignore massive chunks of the New Testament. Where the Bible talks about the differences between men and women. You talk about all the places where Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 to answer questions about marriage and sexuality. Others have said that this passage doesn't eliminate gender, but merely the differences between the genders. Uh, they view this passage like a skeleton key that can open any door that you want. And this passage becomes the lens through which you read everything else that the Bible says about manhood and womanhood. The problem is there's so many other passages in the New Testament that talk about the differences between male and female. Let's look at just a few of these. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be here next week. You can turn there if you'd like or it'll be on the screen. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse two, 22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself, himself up for her. 
Now, we're going to dive really deep into this passage next Sunday, but I want you to notice this for right now. At the very least, Paul, who also wrote Galatians, understands that there's a difference between being a husband and being a wife. You can see that, right? It's obvious. There's one set of instructions for husbands, one set of instructions for wives. We're going to dive into those next Sunday. But you, you can't then say that in Galatians 3.28 that Paul doesn't think there's a difference between men and women. It's not what he means. Another example of this principle is in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul talks about the difference. The same author, Paul talks about the differences between men and women in the church. 1 Timothy 2 verse 12. And we'll talk about this passage in about three or four weeks. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, ladies, we talked about this briefly last Sunday, and I'm going to do it again in case you weren't here last Sunday. This does not mean that you're not allowed to talk in the building. That's not what Paul is saying. You say, how do you know? Because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We know uh, in places like 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, are praying in the church services. So women pray out loud in our church services. We know from places like Hebrews 10 verse 25 that all Christians, men and women, are commanded to encourage one another when we gather. So you, women, you, you have to speak to encourage each other the way that Hebrews 10 25 tells you to. Uh, we know from Colossians 3.16 that all Christians, men and women, are called to teach and admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving and their hearts to God. You can't do that with your mouth closed. So when Paul says women are to remain quiet, he's talking about a particular kind of speaking. He's not saying you can't speak at all, ladies. He's saying there's a type of speaking that you are not to take. And this is a type of speaking that only one group of people is called today to take. And it's not all men. It's qualified elders. We'll talk about that as we get there. If you have major questions about that, I hope you'll stick with us. And we'll get there in a few weeks. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. These are like the guardrails that keep your car from careening off a cliff. You ever driven on some sort of really steep mountain road and there's guardrails there and you're so grateful for those guardrails because you would probably, if you're like me, maybe a little twitch and you, you're off the cliff, right? Interpreting scripture with scripture, think about it like the guardrails that keep you from going off the rails, off the reservation, careening into heresy. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture helps us do that. Practically, Christian, uh, one practical way you can apply this is be faithful to read your entire Bible. Read your entire Bible. The only reason why I was able to eventually find out that Esau did not repent is because eventually I got to Hebrews, right? Had I never got there, I might still today be thinking that was a killer sermon. It wasn't. It was horrible. You, Christian, we need to be in God's Word. Now, if this is new to you uh, or you're just getting started, that's great. But as you grow and mature, there should not be rooms in the mansion of God's Word that you have not yet entered into. 
All of God's word should be a part of your life. That helps us to interpret scripture with scripture. As a church, one way we do this is by regularly preaching and teaching through books of the Bible. Uh, right now, we're not doing that. We're going to different passages to look at this topic. But as a general rule, the main diet of this and any local church should be to walk through Scripture. And one of the things we try to do at PBC is we go back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament so that we're trying to hear from the whole counsel of God's Word. These things help us to interpret Scripture with Scripture. But there's another important conviction about interpretation that we need to consider and that's that we need to interpret Scripture in context. Now hear me, Christian. The Bible is not a collection of fortune cookie notes. What do you call that? What's the thing inside the cookie? A fortune. That's right. It's a fortune. The, the Bible is not a, a collection of fortune cookie fortunes that you just pull out of your cookie and there's your word, there's your truth for today. You cannot pick and pull the Bible apart like that. The Bible needs to be understood in context. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Uh, recently, I was using a popular Bible study program when I came across this Bible verse image. And the image shows a green light, and it quotes 2 Samuel 7, 3, which says, Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, what? Man, what an inspiring message, right? You got a green light. Green means go. This is great. Uh, the, and God is, is telling Nathan, uh, whatever's in your heart, the Lord is with you. Now, if that's all that I see, I might think that God wants me to follow my heart. I might think that the Lord is with me as long as I do what's in my heart. I might even think that the Lord was with David, the king, and whatever was in David's heart. But guess what? All you have to do is read the next two verses to find out that's not at all what that passage is about. Because two verses later, God says to Nathan the prophet, nope, tell him you are wrong. I don't know who made this Bible verse, surely they, or this Bible image, surely they meant well, they were trying hard, but it's horrible because it misleads you. It gives you an idea that the Bible is saying this, but it's really saying that. It's an example of how to take the Bible out of context. Now, what can we learn about Galatians 3.28 by looking at the context? Let's begin with the letter as a whole. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in a region of the world called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. It's about 30 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul is writing to combat a very serious doctrinal error in the church. Uh, we see that right in the beginning of the letter. You can go there in your Bibles, uh, or you can look at Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This entire letter According to a, a fourth century theologian named Marius Victorinus, he, he says it's like this. The Galatians are going astray because they're adding Judaism to the gospel of faith in Christ. Disturbed by these tendencies, Paul writes this letter in order that they may preserve their faith in Christ. 
So what's the purpose of the book of Galatians? Paul did not write this letter to overturn gender norms. He didn't, he didn't write this letter to upend the social order. He wrote this letter to push people to the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, dear brothers, sisters, and friends, what is the gospel? In a sentence, the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to rescue sinners. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is filled with good advice. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Christianity is rooted on good news. Something happened. What happened? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul writes this letter to remind these Galatian Christians, don't leave the gospel behind. Don't add to it. Don't run from it. Cling to the gospel. What does the gospel then have to do with Galatians 3.28? The answer is everything. Everything. Look with me at verse 27. Galatians 3 verse 27. Paul says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The, the word baptized literally means to be dunked. So for those of you that dip your Oreos in milk, you're baptizing them. That's literally what the word means. We're all about baptism here at Pocosin Baptist Church. It means to dunk and, and, and to be immersed in something. And, and Paul, is, he's, he's using baptism as an illustration of what it means to be a Christian, to be immersed in Christ, to dive into the ocean that is Christ, and all your life is now about Christ. And when you do that, when you give your life to Jesus, you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, the very first thing that you do in, in obedience to Jesus is to make it public through baptism. To, to enter into the water, not to wash away your sins, but to show to your friends and neighbors and families that they have been washed away by the blood of Christ. So let me ask you, dear friend, have you been baptized into Jesus? Have, have you turned away from your sins and trusted in Him? Have you dove headfirst into the ocean that is Jesus and given Him everything that you are? Say, all of my life belongs to you. There's no closet somewhere that you can't have access to. It's all yours. And if you have done that, friend, have you taken the first step of obedience by pursuing water baptism as an outward symbol of your inward faith? If the answer to any of either of those questions is no, I would love to talk with you more after the service. But if you have been baptized into Christ, if you're a Christian and you've made that public through baptism, here's what Paul wants you to get in verse 28. There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. You see how the context helps you understand verse 28? Look at it again. 
because you've been baptized into Christ, because you've made that public through the waters of baptism, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. In Paul's day, there were three things that divided people. Three things. There was race. Are you a Jew? Or are you a Gentile? There was rank. Are you a free person? Or are you a slave? And there was sex. Are you a man? Or are you a woman? The Greeks... They often despised their slaves and mistreated their women. And the Jews were rarely much better. There's a popular Jewish prayer. This is not in the Bible, but a popular Jewish prayer from that day, from the first century, that goes like this. Many Jewish men would wake up every morning and they would pray, thank you, God, for not making me a foreigner, a slave, or a woman. Paul, probably picking up on that prayer, He says, that's garbage. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You are in Christ. You see how understanding how to interpret the Bible rightly helps us to see what Paul is after here. If we interpret the Bible in context, it becomes clear that Paul is not trying to eliminate gender distinctions. He's trying to explain how everybody, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, everybody has equal access to the cross. Or to put it another way, we stand, men and women, on level ground at the foot of the cross. So let's consider finally this morning what we believe about the cross. There's a danger in preaching a sermon like this, especially if you're new here to Pocosin Baptist Church. And the danger is that you think that this is what we care the most about. Man, Pocosin Baptist Church, they're the biblical manhood and womanhood church. And maybe you think that. We want to be the biblical manhood and womanhood church, and yet that's really not what we're about. What we're about is the cross of Jesus Christ. That has to be what this church is about. The message of the cross is both the heart of the gospel and the most important truth claim in all of Christianity. Paul puts it this way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he literally knows nothing else but Jesus and Him crucified. But he means everything that he knows, he knows it through the lens of the cross. Everything that he sees, whether he's talking about elders or deacons or men or women or the church or the world or evangelism or prayer, everything is seen through the lens of the cross. PBC, above all else, let us be cross-shaped, cross-centered people. That is what we have to be about above anything else. And if we are about the cross, I believe that it will change the way we look at all those issues. 
Let me suggest three truths from our text that help us to understand, three truths about the cross that help us to understand the heartbeat of Galatians 3.28. First of all, men and women have equal need for the cross. Men and women have equal need for the cross. Now, you may not know this, but it was pretty common in the ancient world to talk about the wickedness of women. If you read a lot of the ancient writers, not just uh, Jewish writers, but the Greek philosophers, many of them talked about how wicked and deceitful women were. It's pretty common. So if you were there, you know, a street preacher in the first century, and you said women were wicked, be every like, amen, yes. Even the women would be like, yeah, absolutely we are. But if you said men are wicked too, crickets. Whoa, uh, we're, we're the nobler sex. Today we've kind of flipped it, haven't we? Today we talk a lot about toxic masculinity. It's okay to say culturally, you can stand in a street corner and say, men are wicked, and you'll get a crowd. People say, yeah, that's great. But if you say, women are wicked, and we kind of fade into the bushes like Homer Simpson, you know? Some of you don't know what that means, and that's okay. Here's the deal. Neither femininity nor masculinity are toxic. Sin is toxic. Now, I want to be really clear. Men and women sin in different ways. We do. Uh, I asked PVC member Kathy Proctor about this because she has years of counseling people, years of experience counseling in this church and beyond. Here's what she said. She said, men are overt and women are covert in how they execute their sinfulness. He abuses violently, she abuses psychologically. Of course, both can be guilty of both, but I am referring to our sin nature defaults. There's a lot of truth in that statement, isn't there? Here's another way to put it. All sin is equally damning, but not equally damaging. All sin is equally damning. So whether you hate your brother or kill him, you're worthy of hell either way, aren't you? According to Jesus, guilty of hellfire. And yet, one of those sins actually causes more earthly damage than the other one does, right? I mean, we, sh we certainly shouldn't say, well, if I thought it, I might as well do it because it's the same thing. That's not what Jesus means. Men, because of our strength, because of our power culturally through much of human history, we have had the ability to sin in ways that often causes greater earthly damage. And yet, both men and women are equally damned apart from Christ. Men and women, your hearts are equally wicked. Your minds are equally corrupted. I think it's quite common, and I think it's quite understandable why we, why we recognize that men have corrupted minds. We do. But ladies, your minds are no less corrupted. They might be bent differently, but they're still bent apart from Christ. Our eyes are equally 
blinded. Our wills are equally rebellious. Listen, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as verses 23 and 24 state in Galatians 3, all of us are enslaved to sin. All of us are imprisoned by our inability to keep the law of God. So men, you are not better than women. You need the cross just as much as they do. And women, you are not better than men. You need the cross just as much as they do. Now, I feel like I need to say this just for our singles in this room who may be in a position where you find yourself looking for a man or a woman. Ladies, you might be better than some men, but not all men categorically. Just because you're equally sinners, equally broken, equally fallen, does not mean that every man is as good as every other man in looking for a husband. And same too for men. But all of us have equal need for the cross. Second truth from our text is that men and women have equal access to the cross. We have equal need for the cross, and we have equal access to the cross. Now, I want you to think about how massive this is, because every other religion in every other culture virtually universally limits women, especially historically. For example, in Hinduism, you ever heard of the practice of sati in Hinduism? Go home and look it up. In sati, in Hinduism, when a man dies, his wife, living, is burned atop his funeral pyre because she has no reason to exist apart from her husband. And so she dies too. It was the work of Christians like William Carey that put an end to sati in India. And yet it has deep roots in Hinduism. In Buddhism, the Buddha himself said something, I'm going to clean up the language just a little bit. But he said, basically, the Buddha, it's better to sleep with a venomous snake or a pile of burning coals than a woman. That's the Buddha. In Islam, men are given authority in the Quran to beat their wives because Allah made them superior to women. Even in Judaism, Women were not allowed to enter into the main court. In synagogue, when they gathered for their weekly worship in their communities, the men and women were kept separate. Can you just recognize how amazingly different and open Christianity is? Can you imagine a church service where you walked in and we said, ladies, sorry, you got to sit back there. All the men, come on up here, get the good seats. Ladies, actually, just stay with the kids. That would be better for you. That would be horrible and offensive. And yet that was not uncommon at all in the ancient world to to separate men from women. Religion was for the men. But Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Look at the way that Jesus interacted with women. Women have equal access to the cross 
That's Paul's point in verse 28. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a free person, a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. Any of you can come to Jesus. John MacArthur puts it this way. In recognizing believing women as the full spiritual equals of believing men, Christianity elevated women to a status they had never known before in the ancient world. Do you see how beautiful and glorious and open that the cross is to all who will come to Christ? Dear friend, there is not a person in this room that cannot come to Christ. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what career field you're in. It doesn't matter what status you are. You can come to Christ. You can come to Jesus. He will receive you. He will in no wise cast you out if you come to him in repentance and faith. Men and women have equal access to the cross. And number three, the third truth from our text, men and women have equal benefits from the cross. Look at all the ways that men and women receive the same thing in Jesus. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Justification by faith, this amazing reality that we are declared righteous by God is equally available to men and women. Verse 25, now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian referring to the law. Men and women are equally free from the bondage of the law of the old covenant. Not that some are free and others aren't. All of us are free. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Perhaps you see that and you say, well, why does he say sons of God? Why doesn't he say we're all sons and daughters of God? Because who received the inheritance? The sons. And so Paul says, even to the daughters, your sons, not because your gender has changed, but because you get the full inheritance too. There's no better inheritance for the men. It's all for all of us in Christ. It's glorious good news. Verse 27 as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Men and women are equally immersed in Jesus, equally clothed in his righteousness. Unlike Judaism, both men and women can receive the sign of the covenant through baptism. It's not just open to men. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, verse 29, heirs according to the promise. Jew and Gentile, men and women, slave and free, all of us are heirs to all the promises given to Abraham because we belong to Christ. Now, I want you to notice that language of belonging to Christ. Do you remember in the Toy Story films, both Buzz and Woody have these identity crises, right? Um, in the first film, Buzz Lightyear, he's a space ranger. And Woody says, you are a toy. You are a sad, strange little man. You have my pity, right? <laughs> what is it that helps Buzz to see who he is? Eventually, he looks on a shoe, and he sees the name Andy there. 
In Toy Story 2, Woody has the same problem. It's the reverse. Woody realizes he's part of Woody's Roundup, this, this rare collectible toy, this incredible thing, and he can be behind glass at a museum where people wonder at him. And Buzz says to Woody, you're a toy. You're meant to be played with. And finally, Woody looks at the name on his shoe, and he sees he belongs to Andy. Now, now here's a lesson. It's easier to live like who you are when you remember whose you are. Ladies, men, we're going to dive neck deep into how God calls us to relate with each other next Sunday. Listen to me. Remember that. Remember who you belong to. If you look and you see, I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. I have free access to him through Christ at the cross. I belong to him. It's so much easier to live this life faithfully when you know that you belong to him. So may that be our heart. May that be our desire. May that be our joy as we continue to walk through what God's word says about men and women. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that you loved the world so much you sent your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, we thank you that we belong to you not by our gender or our status or our race or our works, but we belong to you simply because of the work of Jesus that he lived a sinless life for all of us, that he died a sinner's death for all of us, and that he rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. I don't know the hearts of all the men and women and boys and girls in this room, but you do. If there's any in this room that don't belong to Jesus, I pray that right now, right in this moment, they would dive in. They would cast all of their cares on Jesus and put all their hopes in him. And for those that have, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember whose we are. And may that help us to live out who we are in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?